0: Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Uh, as Americans living in the 21st century, uh, I think it's safe to say that we will receive this letter um, quite differently than the Ephesians originally received it back in the first century. I think that is especially true of this passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, unlike the early church in Ephesus, We have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history, and we've got seemingly endless information available at our fingertips on the internet, and so we're very aware of the spread of the gospel uh, all the way to the end of the earth. The resurrected Christ told his his disciples in the first chapter of Acts that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth, and 2,000 years later despite the fact that there are still far too many unreached people groups, too many ethnicities that uh, have never heard the name of Jesus, who don't even have one page of Scripture translated into their language, despite the fact that that's true, we can see that the gospel message truly has spread from Jerusalem out into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and even to nearly every corner of the globe. For us, for most of us, I think we simply take for granted that Christianity is open to men and women and children of any nationality or ethnicity. But if we try to put ourselves in the sandals of of the original recipients of this letter, it's a completely different reality that we see. Up to this point in history, Jews believe that in order to be justified in God's eyes, one must first become Jewish. Before Christ, there was enmity, there was strife, there was hatred between Jew and Gentile. As Paul explained in the passage we looked at last week, back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, that the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile was broken down by the cross of Christ, by the blood that Jesus shed, by the substitutionary, atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus killed the hostility, he reconciled Jew and Gentile to God and to one another. Jesus accomplished peace in that way. And the newness of that reality likely made this portion of of Paul's letter to the Ephesians one of the most, if not the most, profound portions of this letter. With that in mind, let's read through this passage together. Uh, Then we'll set our minds and our hearts on understanding what Paul was trying to communicate to the Ephesians there. Your Bibles are open to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Uh, Follow along as I read aloud. which is your glory. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. In most modern English translations of the Bible, you notice that there is a dash after the word Gentiles there in verse 1, Ephesians 3, verse 1. That's because Paul began a thought and then in very Pauline fashion, uh, he changed the direction of his thoughts and something catch, ca- captured his attention probably something captured his affections, and he was taken to another place in his thoughts. He went on a a Holy Spirit-inspired digression of thought. Of course, the original Greek doesn't contain that dash, but translators have added it there for us to see that there was this break in thought. Uh, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and, and then there's the dash. At that point, it's like Paul was a, a golden retriever that saw a squirrel or something, right? He, his train of thought just went completely in a different direction. If you look over to verse 14, you notice that it, that it begins with the same words that are found there in verse 1. For this reason. Uh, it seems that Paul, uh, his initial intention was to lift up a prayer on behalf of the Ephesian church because of what he had just shared with them at the end of chapter 2 regarding the former vertical and horizontal alienation of the Gentiles, that was their previous reality, and then the double reconciliation won for them by Jesus Christ, and the work of transformation by the Holy Spirit, who is taking these living stones and building a new dwelling place for God, on the foundation of the apostles' teaching, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. The heaviness of that truth, uh, I think it drove Paul to his knees in prayer to God, but but not before he took a little bit of a rabbit trail. Were the better For this little rabbit trail. This diversion gives us great insight into the Apostle Paul. He had written to the Philippians to join in imitating him. He'd also written to the Corinthians to be imitators of him as he is of Christ. It's my hope that this parenthetical thought recorded in Ephesians 3 will help us to do just that, to know Paul better and to be better imitators of him as he was of Christ. Before Paul was distracted, he started by saying, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Perhaps it would be helpful to remind ourselves of how Paul became a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Uh, when he called himself a prisoner, he was not speaking metaphorically there. Uh, he was truly imprisoned. You know, if you're part of our youth group, you, you would probably even say that he was literally imprisoned, right? Right? Um, how and why did that happen? By God's grace, Luke was by his side, and and he recorded many of those details in the book of Acts. And while there's too much to cover all of it this morning, I'm just going to hit a few of the key points. Uh, Paul the Apostle was not always Paul the Apostle. Uh, Paul was born Saul of Tarsus in Asia Minor. Although he enjoyed Roman citizenship as a a native of Tarsus, uh, Saul was a Jew of Jews. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, Uh, He was a Pharisee by trade, which meant that he was at the pinnacle of Jewish religiosity. He he sat under the foremost of uh, rabbis at that time, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Paul was so zealous for the Jewish faith uh, that he made it his mission to hunt down converts from Judaism to Christianity and to drag them to prison. Luke wrote that Saul was ravaging the church. Saul supervised the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith. If anyone had confidence in the flesh, Saul thought that he had more. Acts 9 records the conversion of Saul after he had an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Then in Acts 13, Luke wrote that Saul was also called Paul. And from that time forward, we read of Paul the apostle rather than Saul the Pharisee. The the man who used to go door-to-door hunting down Christians was now going village to village and pleading with people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And fast forward then to the end of Paul's third missionary journey in Acts 21, where he was warned that he would be imprisoned by the Jews and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles if he returned to Jerusalem. Having heard that warning, Paul replied, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's Acts chapter 21. Verse 13. That is both very convicting uh, and I think also very encouraging. Uh, A man who was completely sold out for Christ. He had developed a theology of not only being fired and not only being imprisoned, but also dying for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul was warned that the Jews would arrest him in Jerusalem, and that's exactly what happened. Why was he arrested? I think this is critical to understand what we're reading this morning in Ephesians 3, the the reason that Paul was arrested. There were some Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem, uh, probably all the way from Ephesus, and they saw Paul there, and they saw that he was with a a Gentile by the name of Trophimus, and they thought that Saul, or at least they accused Saul of bringing that Gentile into the temple of God, uh, past the court of Gentiles, and thereby defiling the holy temple of God. And so, uh, uh, for that, for that accusation, a riot broke out in the city, and a mob tried to actually kill Paul. Uh, that really opens our eyes to the, the hatred that the Jew had for the Gentile. The Romans arrested Paul, or excuse me, after being arrested, Paul asked to speak publicly with the Jews, and, and he shared with them his personal history, he shared with them uh, his testimony of salvation, and the Jews listened to, to everything that he had to say. They listened with open ears, right up until the point where he said uh, that God had told him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh, and when they heard that, they lost their minds. They started yelling, and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Again, this, was the, this emphasizes the hatred and the great divide that existed between Jew and Gentile in the first century. The Romans arrested Paul and then there was a series of trials and a series of rulers. Uh, Paul spent two years in, in prison in Caesarea. Um, then he appealed to Caesar rather than going back to Jerusalem. And then he was sent to Rome where he was imprisoned several more years. And it was during that imprisonment that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And so as we get back to Ephesians 3, to 1, 3, 1 to 13, I want you to make note of the fact that Paul identified himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus or a prisoner for Christ Jesus Now it would have been historically accurate for Paul to call himself a, a prisoner for or a prisoner of the Jews. It was the Jews that trumped up these false charges against him. He was a, a prisoner of the Jews. Uh, he could have said that. Uh, he was under house arrest in Rome, so he could have referred to himself as a prisoner of Rome. Uh, he had appealed to Caesar. He was waiting for trial before Caesar, so he could have said that he was a prisoner of Caesar, or a prisoner, prisoner of Nero. But he didn't say any of those things. He he realized that he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He was imprisoned by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles, but all of this was for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was not despondent about his imprisonment. In fact, he seemed to rejoice in it. Writing to the Philippians, Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard And to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's Ephesians 1, 12-14. The Jews meant Paul's imprisonment for evil, but God meant it for good. The gospel advanced. The saints were encouraged. The word was spoken boldly and without fear. Now, Paul likely remembered all the way back to his conversion when he was shown how much he must suffer for the, the sake of Jesus' name. Now, even as he closed this section, Paul reminded the Ephesians that his suffering was for their good, so they shouldn't become despondent, they shouldn't lose heart about what he was going through. Now, suffering is it's not fun. Uh, it's not something that any of us would or, or should seek out. Um, but when suffering happens and, and we're promised that we will suffer, have tribulation in this world, uh, we shouldn't be overcome by it. It shouldn't completely tear us down. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We should trust in God's sovereignty uh, over our suffering and look for ways in which the, the gospel can advance through it as well. So in Ephesians 3.1, uh, Paul called himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and then he added those words, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's still addressing the Gentiles in this portion of his letter, and here he's just simply stating a fact. As we noted earlier, Paul was arrested because of that Jewish fanaticism against his ministry to the Gentiles. We'll take a look at that ministry in just a few minutes, but first, let's look at the the mystery that was revealed to Paul. Point number one in your outlines, uh, the mystery revealed to Paul. We see that in verses 2 to 6. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. Three different times in that small paragraph, Paul used the word mystery, Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. On a side note, uh, English translators added the word this mystery there in verse 6, but it doesn't exist in the original text. But mystery is a key word for our understanding of Paul, and certainly for our understanding of this text here. Paul used the word mystery 21 times. In his letters. Now, when we hear the word mystery, uh, what we usually conjure up in, in our mind are images of things like Agatha Christie books or maybe some sort of true crime documentary or, or podcast. Uh, for some, maybe there are, are images of Benedict Cumberbatch wearing a long trench coat and, and a goofy hat. Uh, for others of us, it's uh, Scooby-Doo and, and Shaggy riding in, in the mystery van. Right? You know who you are, yeah. Whatever the case, uh, the English word mystery, it doesn't have the same meaning as the Greek word mysterion, which happens to be the source of that English word. Uh, in English, a mystery is something that is secret. It's, it's dark. Uh, it's twisted. It's convoluted. Uh, it's difficult to figure out. But the Greek word means something a bit different. Uh, it's still a mystery, but it's it's no longer hidden. It's It's a fact that's been revealed. It's been opened up. It's something that's been revealed to those who would see it. Uh, Kent Hughes explains it this way. In the New Testament, the Greek word musterion means something that is beyond natural knowledge, but has been opened to us by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. We heard this in the, in the passage that, that Jeff had read for us this morning. In Colossians 1.26, Paul referred to the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. So what is the open truth or, or the revealed secret that Paul is writing about in Ephesians 3? Uh, he said that it was made known to him by revelation. Uh, he said that, that it wasn't made known to the sons of men beforehand. In, in verse 4, Paul called it the mystery of Christ, and that means that Jesus is both the source and the substance of that mystery. So what is the mystery? Let's look at verse 6. You'll see it again. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The open secret is that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body, and they're partakers of the promise. This now revealed secret is the church. ESV doesn't really do, do a good job of capturing Paul's emphasis of the togetherness of Jew and Gentile because of the gospel. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. That all sounds nice, that's good, but it doesn't really communicate Paul's strong, strong emphasis on that togetherness. As he had already done twice in his letter, Paul used or even created three new words with the prefix, with the same prefix, all meaning together. And so I think the NIV probably best, does the best job of capturing the English there. Listen to the NIV of of chapter 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Again, for our 21st century ears, uh, this probably isn't altogether shocking. Uh, Like I mentioned before, we we take for granted uh, that anybody, uh, without any kind of dispute or argument, anybody can become a Christian, by turning from sin and putting their faith in Christ. This isn't news to us, but to the first-century Jew, uh, to the first-century Gentile, this was transformative. This this was revolutionary. This wasn't simply paradigm-shifting. This was paradigm-destroying. I can imagine if emojis were a thing back then, uh, Paul probably would have put at least three of the mind-blown emojis at the end of this sentence— That this was a completely new reality. Previously, Gentiles couldn't even approach the God of Israel unless they first became Israelites. He or she would have had to become a Jewish proselyte. If it was a male, he would have had to become part of the covenant people of God by going through the ceremony of circumcision. The mystery that was revealed to Paul is that such an approach to God is no longer necessary. And even though Paul said that this mystery was revealed to him and to God's holy apostles and prophets, even some of them struggled with this truth initially. Paul wrote to the Galatians how he had to confront Peter to his face uh, because Peter was not standing up to the circumcision party who was still teaching that those who wanted to become Christians had to first become Jews by going through the ritual of circumcision. Paul said that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul told Peter... If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter eventually came to understand that the Jews and Gentiles were were heirs together, uh, that they were members together of one body, that they were sharers together of the promise of Christ. But the change was so radical uh, that it didn't happen overnight, and, and it took some growing pains as well. Well, now that we have a better understanding of that mystery that was revealed to Paul, let's look at the ministry that was given to Paul. That's point number two in our outlines, the ministry given to Paul. We see that in verses 7 to 12. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for, every th- for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And from reading these verses, it's clear that Paul was amazed by God's grace. God extended saving grace to him, and God extended grace to him by giving him a ministry. Uh, Here he's emphasizing that he did not make himself a minister of the gospel, but he was made a minister. He was given a ministry, and that by God's grace, by the working of his power. It was not Paul's incredible education, Uh, It wasn't his winsome personality. It wasn't his lengthy resume that made him qualified for this ministry. In fact, in Paul's eyes, uh, he would call himself even unworthy of this ministry. You see that in verse 8. Paul refers to himself as the very least of all the saints. Uh, To emphasize that point, Paul, again, made up a a new word. Uh, It could be translated uh, the leaster or the less than the leastest. He, he was the very least of all the saints. Elsewhere, Paul had referred to himself as, as the foremost of sinners, and, and the least of all the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. Least of the saints, a foremost of sinners, least of all the apostles. Paul was not wallowing there in, in the mire of self-pity, um, but rather he had profound understanding of, of who he was. Yes, he understood that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul wrote those words. He understood it. Even so, he still knew who he was and what he had done, the persecution that he brought against the church of Christ. And so he knew what it was like to be uh, before coming to Saving Faith, and he knew that amazing grace that God had extended to him, both in salvation and in giving him a ministry to proclaim the gospel. The text indicates that there are three directions in which this ministry was to be taken. Three different directions. First, he was given the ministry to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. See that in verse 8. Paul was sent to preach to the Gentiles. and Jesus himself gave Paul this ministry at the point of his conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul had, had recalled this to King Agrippa. It's recorded in Acts 26. Jesus said to Paul, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's quite a commissioning statement. And it sounds like that's exactly what Paul is communicating to the church in Ephesus, uh, the, this grace that was given to him, this mission that was given to him. The message Paul was to take to the Gentiles was, was a message of, of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that really harkens back to the first chapter of, of this letter to the Ephesians. There Paul described the, the spiritual blessings which God has blessed those who are in Christ. Election. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, unity, and inheritance, the Holy Spirit of God Himself. Uh, these, these riches are, of Christ are unsearchable, in that, and they, you cannot track out the end of it. That's what that word means. They're, they're, the end of those riches are untrackable, they're, they're infinite. And there are many who set their hearts on the riches this world has to offer. Uh, where moth and where rust destroy, uh, while completely neglecting and overlooking the infinite and eternal riches of Christ that can be theirs simply by turning from sin and putting their faith in Christ. This is complete folly, to set your heart on, on the things of this world, the things that are seen rather than the things that are unseen, the things that are transient rather than the things that are eternal. The second part of the ministry that was given to Paul can be seen in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul shifts his focus from from the message that he was given to the, the condition of those who would receive the message. He would be proclaiming truth to those who were in darkness. They were in the darkness of ignorance, and Paul never forgot his commission from Jesus. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now, when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to remember the fact that uh, the men, the women, the children uh, with whom we're sharing that news are in darkness. The power of the enemy holds them in darkness. And it's only by a work of the Holy Spirit that their eyes will be made to see. We must be faithful to share the gospel and trust in God's plan to, to use that gospel to bring people to light. It's how every one of us came to be saved. By God's grace, we who once were in darkness, we heard the good news of Jesus, and, and we responded by turning from sin and by putting our faith in Christ. In Him, we have forgiveness of our sins. In fact, later in this letter, Paul reminds his readers, at one time, you were darkness. That's a dark truth. In one time, not only were we in darkness, but at one time, we were darkness. But by God's grace, we are now light in the Lord. So Paul encourages us to walk as children of the light. Before looking at that third and final direction in which Paul was to take his ministry, uh, we should note that the message Paul was to bring to light for everyone was the message of the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Again, according to verse 6, this is the fact that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are incorporated um, into one, on equal terms into one body, in, into the church. The, these former enemies are, are now brought together in one body, which is the church. Paul was to preach the good news of Christ to the Gentiles, and he was to bring delight for everyone, God's plan of, of creating a new race, the church. Lastly, perhaps most surprisingly, we see in verse 10, Paul's ministry was to have an indirect effect on the angels. In verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. As these unsearchable riches of Christ were were preached, uh, and as Jews and Gentiles were being brought out of darkness and into light, um, they found themselves joint members uh, of one body, of the family of God, and and together members of the body of Christ, this church. In this completely new phenomenon, uh, this new multi ethnic or multi racial third race, the wisdom of God was on display. For all the world to see, and not just the physical world, but also the spiritual world. Paul refers to this wisdom as the as the manifold wisdom of God. That manifold is not a word that we use frequently, but uh, it means multicolored. Uh, if you think about uh, the coat of many colors that Joseph was given, that same word is used to describe that. It's a multicolored wisdom. The church is a multiracial, multicultural community, unlike anything else on earth. And both its diversity and its harmony are unique. We are God's new society as a church. As the gospel message spreads and as, as people respond in repentance and belief, this new Christian community, the church, develops and it grows. But the church is not an end to itself, the church doesn't exist simply to save the lost, uh, even though that is a very good and very important work of the church. The, the church exists to bring glory to God. And what this passage is teaching us, that if the church functions the way that we're supposed to, uh, then the, the manifold wisdom of God will be in, on display through us. And it's not just on display to those that are around us, but it's on display to the heavenly, in the heavenly places as well. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places is, is really just a complex way of saying the angels, uh, and it includes both the fallen angels and, and the faithful angels. So we can infer from this passage that God has not previously revealed to this, the heavenly host his plan to redeem a people for himself, that that was something that was hidden from, from them through the ages. But instead, God intended to make this plan known through the church itself. That's an incredible plan. John Stott said that it's through the old creation, the universe, that that God reveals his glory to humans. It's through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to the angels. Even though we're not able to see angels, uh, they seem to be able to see us and, and they long to look into things like this. As the angels watch Jews and Gentiles being incorporated into the new third race, they learn not only God's manifold wisdom, uh, but also his eternal purpose. God accomplished his eternal plan uh, to redeem a people for himself through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is through faith in Jesus that the Jew and the Gentile, the believers in Christ, have boldness and confident access to the Father. I recognize that uh, some of this is somewhat heady, um, thinking about uh, how we are witnessing to those in heavenly places to spiritual beings. I understand that that is um, somewhat difficult to wrap our minds around, but as, as we just take a step back and as we kind of ponder this parenthetical thought of, of Paul, as, as we try to figure out what it is that he's trying to communicate, I think uh, for us, even in the 21st century, we should recognize that there are implications that are really, truly significant, uh, even for us. But first, the little digression here gives us Great insight into the Apostle Paul, a man whom we're commanded to imitate, as he imitated Christ. Uh, Paul never got over the grace of God. Uh, It was by the grace of God that Paul was saved, uh, even though he hated Jesus uh, and and was a persecutor of the church. It was by the grace of God that the mystery of Christ was revealed to Paul, and it was by the grace of God that the ministry of the gospel was given to him as well. No, we live in a, in a completely different time than Paul. Our, our culture is completely different than Paul's. Uh, none of us are apostles. Not one of us have received a new word, a new revelation from God. Even so, uh, the, the truth, the mystery that was revealed to Paul and recorded for us in the pages of Scripture is no less ours than it, than it was his. We have that revelation for us in the Word of God. Paul said, in fact, that Christ has reconciled us to himself, and, and he too gave us a ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have been given a ministry, just like Paul was given a ministry. We, we are to proclaim the good news of Christ to those who are in darkness. Next, we can, can't help but see from this text the high value that God places on the church. That was a conclusion that we saw from last week's passage as well that the church is not an afterthought. Um, Here, this text teaches that this was a a plan of God from before time began, and a plan that He kept secret, a a mystery from, even from the heavenly beings, but that He's revealed through time. There was this progressive revelation, and that God's, uh, His manifold wisdom is on display in making this plan unfold. The church is central to the gospel. According to this text, the complete gospel involves both the preaching of Christ and the mystery of the church. Jesus was crucified and resurrected not only to save individuals, but also to create for himself a single, a unified, new humanity. That means that the church is vitally important to the Christian faith. Our church is being watched by the world and and by angels as well. The unity And love that we display reflects how much we love Christ. Lastly, the church is central to Christian living. Christians cannot consider commitment to a local church as being optional. It simply isn't faithful to who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us in saving us. He didn't save us and, and keep us out on our own, but he saved us and recreated us to be part of a body. Uh, and he created us to do good works in Christ, and this is done in the context of a local church. Now, you don't have to be a Christian, or you don't have to go to church in order to be a Christian, uh, any more than you have to go home in order to be married, right? Uh, but if you choose not to go home on a frequent basis, that relationship is going to suffer. Uh, and that's the same can be said of our relationship with God. If we're not in... in faithful attendants of local church gatherings, our relationship with God will suffer. God esteemed the church so highly that before time began, He planned to make His wisdom known to heavenly hosts through the church. Now, if God so highly esteemed the church, shouldn't we do the same? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for Paul's little rabbit trail of thought here. Uh, it seems that he initially wanted just to go to you, uh, to pray to you on behalf of the Ephesians, and yet something else caught his attention, and he recorded this passage, which reveals so much to us about him and about the mystery of that was revealed to him and also about the, the ministry that was given to him. Father, as those that are living thousands of years later, uh, we need your Holy Spirit to impart the truth of this passage into our hearts, into our minds, that you would give us true understanding of this. And Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers of this truth, but that we would take this truth that we would apply it to our lives. Lord, I stand before the gathering of your church, uh, people who love Christ, people who love one another, and people who love the lost, and consider it their own ministry to share the good news of Christ with others. Lord, this is all by your grace. It's not anything that any of us earned. It's not anything that any of us are worthy of. Lord, it is all a matter of your grace. Father, empower us to to do that work that you've called us to do, to proclaim the good news of Christ, to share the message of reconciliation, to be ministers of that message, or to be ambassadors to those that are in darkness. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Pray that if anything that I said here this morning is contrary to the truth of your word, Lord, that you would correct it immediately, or that you would just strike it from our memories. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. You are worthy of that pursuit. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.